Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 213 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. And if you have any interest in private equity, this episode is absolutely a must listen to. I'm going to completely unpack private equity, the industry, and how it works with a repeat guest named Sonny Vanderbeck. I will give a full background and why he's capable of doing this interview in just a second. But before I do, the reason I wanted to have this interview and this topic today was because over the last four and a half years, I've had dozens of entrepreneurs that have been on the show to share their stories of growing and selling to private equity and then what it's like working with private equity before they sell again. I've had really great private equity firms on the show to share their different models and how they work. Just so many times we cover this topic, but if you're interested in this topic and you've been listening for a long time to the show, you still haven't gotten a full dose start to finish about how private equity works, just like we have with ESOPs and business valuations. So here's a little background on Sunny, and then I'll give you a little cliff note outline of how the conversation and interview for the next hour is going to go. If you did not listen to the previous episode I did with Sonny a couple years ago, it was about how he had started a company called Data Return, which was a leading provider of managed services and utility computing. The company sustained 40% quarter-over-quarter growth for more than three years and reached a $3 billion market capitalization, making Sonny one of the youngest CEOs ever to lead a NASDAQ company. For more than a decade, Sonny led the company through all phases of growth and transformation, received numerous honors, including the Entrepreneur of the Year Award, finalist designation from Ernst & Young, and numerous conscious culture of the business stakeholders. His experience with building, selling, buying back, and then reselling data return, along with his involvement with dozens of private businesses at Satori, Sonny had published his first book called Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. The reason I have really enjoyed having Sonny on the show, and I believe that our morals align, he raised over a billion dollars for Satori Capital, which is a private equity firm, with the investment thesis of conscious capitalism. He really, really believes that good values and a conscious approach towards deploying money and growing value is the way to do it. He raised his fund with no timeline, so he is raising money, buying companies, and giving the internal rate of return back to the shareholders in a completely different model than most other private equity firms, which is why I believe that he was the right person to have on the show to completely unpack the business structure of how private equity works and how the industry works in general. So what Sonny and I are going to be doing is we're going to be talking about how private equity firms raise the money, where the money comes from, and what types of investors, how the general partners of a private equity firm get paid, how they then start the fund and what the fund structure looks like, how that fund structure then buys platform companies and then bolt-ons, and then what the timeline means for the fund, for also the general partners, and then how the entire life cycle from start to finish works. 
It is absolutely a blast. I had a ton of fun and I used the outline of how we teach this in the intentional growth course to really just have a casual conversation about this. So we go back and forth. There's a lot of stories. It is not as detailed as the course. So if you really, really want to dive into this and and see the whiteboard animations and the exercises of private equity, along with ESOPs, business valuations, net proceeds, value growth and strategic planning, Check out the Intentional Growth course. Very actionable, very tangible, and just an absolute high dose of education that'll put you above and beyond most entrepreneurs that are out there. But for the people that are not willing to dive in just yet, check out this interview. It's going to give you a flavor of what kind of meat I love bringing to the industry because I think the world of finance and as it relates to business and valuations and value growth does not have to be that complicated and the more conversations we can have like the one i did with sunny the more power and insights and clarity we can give back to the founders of our middle to lower market companies so that way you who has taken all the risk of starting and growing a company can focus on the right things to grow the value of your company with the end in mind, whether you're going to grow it and then do an ESOP, grow it and then do a private equity recapitalization or sell to a strategic buyer or an internal transfer. Each one of those things is up to you and you can do it when and how you want, but you have to understand how they work so that way you can intentionally focus on the value growth of the company that gives you the choices that you want. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Sonny Vanderbeck. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. So we got Sonny back on the show here. I'll be doing my intro separately, but uh, just some some context for the listeners as you and I were just chatting back and forth, Sonny is... We teach you know, a lot about private equity in the uh, online course, as well as the bootcamp structures, where the, where the money comes from. And as I was thinking about how much I want to just spread the education about how this whole world works of private equity, especially how things are changing with you know, returns that are needed to be delivered to investors, you, know, you throw a pandemic on <laughs> just all the different things that we got going on. And I, and I was telling you, Sunday that you know, my partner and I talk about story after we talk about the private equity and the boot camps and the, and the course because of how you chose to structure Satori. Because, uh, and you, I, I, I don't remember how you worded it, but um, when you were on the last interview, you had said like 11 years ago when you were kind of having this conscious capitalism like flavor to it, you got kicked out of a lot of doors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> so I think, you know, I want the goal behind this is just, you know, I thought about you because the goal of this interview is just to have a super casual dialogue about the world of private equity, where the money comes from, deal structures, you know, just the motives that are instilled based on the structure, right? I don't think there's a good or bad, but because you can be so creative with how you do things when you're on that side, that it just, there's just so many questions that sellers should be asking depending on who they're sitting across from. So 
Um, without you know jumping too far into it, before uh, why don't you just give the listeners a little bit of a backdrop of you, Satori, kind of how you got to where you are today? We'll always put a link into the previous episode, but just a cliff note version. Great. Uh, so cliff notes um, or Army Ranger early in my career, ended up at Microsoft after that. Um, in '96, had this crazy idea that people were going to buy stuff on their computer, and this internet thing might matter. Um, so quit Microsoft and started a company. Uh, grew at 40% every quarter for three and a half years, went public on the NASDAQ, sold that business in early 2002, bought it back in early 2003, ran it for another four years as a private company. That was a little more fun than than being a public company, for sure. And then sold it in, in May of 2007. And along the way had been business dating, for lack of a better term. I met a guy named Randy Eisenman, another CEO, and he and I kind of hit it off we thought the world could be different. You know, we're both entrepreneurs and we saw something that needed to be in the world and, and that became Satori Capital. Um, and the big ideas behind it, really three things. One, at, the, at least at the size and stage companies where we invest, which are typically 100 to 1,000 employees, investment team members who have also been CEOs and COOs and so forth will make different decisions and, and have a different impact on the company. Um, second, time horizon matters a lot. Um, and so unlike most of our industry, we have indefinite life capital. We can be an investor for 90 years if that's the right choice. And as you might imagine, that changes what we prioritize inside of a company. And we're going to be getting a lot into that too. Oh, yeah. Just uh, the, the what the appetite for the listeners. Yeah. Then finally, this idea around conscious capitalism. I mean, the short version of conscious capitalism, profit is not a reflection of value you can extract from a system. It's a reflection of value you create in a system. And so like, what does that really mean? Happy customers and happy employees and happy suppliers and happy community usually make happy investors. So stop putting things backwards. Stop figuring out how to squeeze more out of the system. And go figure out just how to make happier customers and employees and so forth. And if you do that, uh, the investor thing kind of works out. Um, and so we, we think business is more than an ATM, quite a bit more, in fact, given the amount of influence it has on our lives now, um, and that we should be careful and mindful of our responsibility to, to change lives as leaders of a business. Yeah. And that right there summarizes why I wanted you back on the show. And, you know, I just think it's interesting, Sonny, over the last, um, well, in the last couple of months since I renamed the podcast and... You know, honestly, since I had, I've had quite a few people that are back on the show, Jack Stack being one of them. And just, I, I think since you were on the show, I interviewed uh, Alexander, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism. And I just, it's hard for me not to gravitate towards it because of all the things that it stands for, right? I mean, it's, you can make money and do good and the leverage that you have in the world because of business. And all, it, it so matters on how things are designed, like the structure of the money and the people and the stakeholders. And it takes, it takes a lot of education to understand. And I think once people understand, Sonny, the amount of respect that they have for how things are structured becomes even more apparent, right? And, but it, it, takes the, it takes in the kind of the point of this show and some of these series and then our, our education is being able to have people understand the difference between a Satori and what you just described versus someone else, because someone could say what you just said. Right, but like they can indeed. They can. I'm sure you've heard it. There, yeah, and you've seen it. But, but it, what what matters is how the back end is designed, right? And like how the money is getting 
but where the money comes from, what the timeline is, what the motives are of everybody, just it matters every way. And it takes questions to be able to prove that what you said is true, right? So maybe kind of go give us a little, because I think we like, I want a little history on Satori and then we can talk. Like, I, the goal is to understand and kind of shed some light on like, you know, of the limited partners and the money, where does it come from? Why are the people giving private equity, the industry, the money, right? And then how does the typical investment time horizon and structure work? So however you want to start, maybe we end with Satori so there's more, more uh, context behind it. Where does the money come from? And maybe give an overview of the private equity industry and like, why did you decide to get into it? Sure. So um, in general, the, the money in private equity comes from pension plans, foundations and endowments. So the you know teacher's, tension, teacher's pension plan will have an allocation to private equity. A you know large endowment at a college will have an allocation to private equity. And generally those are called institutional investors. So your, your client there um, as a private equity sponsor is somebody who manages a large pool of money um, on behalf of, of someone else. There's another pool that is from larger family offices. And then the last pool and probably the smallest one is from small family offices, um, high net worth individuals, you know, founders of companies, things like that. And one of the things that I, I've always said, and, and maybe you can give some of your insights on the institutional investors. So I think that's one that's maybe a little bit more foreign to people is like these pension funds. I mean, if you start Googling pension fund crisis, <laughs> you can go on a major rabbit hole because they're the reason they're investing in their and their uh, assets is to get a return to pay the firefighters who want 2,500 bucks a month for their for life. That's right. And I just think that there's, a, there, I always say, follow the money. And there's been, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but I've always, the, what I've kind of observed is like the money that has flown into private equity because these institutional investors need a return for the liabilities that are coming due ends up like, I, I don't know, I've, you see more private equity firms popping up every single quarter. And I don't know if that's because the money is flowing that direction, or I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, so so a couple of thoughts there. Um, one, it appears based on the data that the best investment on the table is private equity. Right? When you look at all of the other alternatives, and and this shows up time and time again, and and largely the cycle we're in now came out of the great financial crisis. Um, that that private equity firms, by and large, outperformed the stock market in a meaningful way. And, and lots of them in excess of what's called the liquidity premium. Um, and without getting too wonky about the liquidity premium, if I can sell a stock tomorrow, it's theoretically worth a little more Gee. than if I can't sell it for years. Um, and so when you're willing to lock up capital for years, you should expect a higher return. Mm -hmm. um, but even in, in excess of that. And so as these employees of, of pension funds and endowments and so forth, look at their future liabilities and say, look, how do I get a return and how do I get the return I need to get and do it in a way that hopefully has you know positive outcomes versus negative ones? Because some of that money goes in the stock market, some of it goes into bonds, and some of it goes into venture and increasing portions go into private equity because by and large, it's been a good investment for them. So then, um, and I, I think this is probably once one or two steps ahead, but um, since the, uh, the great financial crisis too, I think it will, I want to talk about how cheap debt has been and how that increases the return. Yeah. I want, we can go into like the returns, but so then 
before we do that, which is kind of the 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 structure of capital and the the debt versus equity, but explain then like okay, general partners, how is a private equity firm structured? Because like when I I, I just when I see people's faces in their boot camp and I say, yeah, the person the, the PE firm that bought my partners, they have multiple billions of dollars, and I say, guess how many people work at the P, the PE firm? And they're like, I don't know, I'm like twelve. Like literally twelve people. So like, explain kind of how the 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 partnership of the private equity firm structures and how like, you know, maybe the different roles and responsibilities of a typical PE firm. Yeah. So you know, this is one of those that'll be a little easier on the whiteboard, but but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I think the most important distinction to make here is that the what's called the management company is not the same as the fund, um, and so you hear these things used interchangeably, and they're not the same thing. At all. <laughs> um, so it, to put some precise language on it, like in our case, so we manage a billion dollars. We don't have a billion dollars. They are very different things, I promise you. Um, <laughs> and so our revenue, you know, if you think about this in sort of classic company terms, um, we have two revenue streams. We have a short-term revenue stream and a long-term revenue stream. And the short-term revenue stream is we get paid a percentage of the capital that we manage on behalf of our investors every year, just as a percentage. And that's um, particularly for smaller funds, um, you know, lights on kind of money. And that usually in private equity is one and a half to two and change percent, depending on the size of the company. Um, And then the long-term revenue stream is carried interest. And the long-term revenue stream only gets paid out of returns that we generate for investors as an industry. So, so the, so the typical uh, situation or typical structure is that as a private equity sponsor, you've got to give your investors an 8% annual return before you get anything, before you get any of that long-term revenue stream. So know that that's important. You know, if you, if you as a private equity investor make 10, 10%, that's not a very good outcome. 10% a year is not a good outcome for, for this industry at large, because what that means is your long-term revenue stream is pretty small. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so, at, and this is going to, this is, I appreciate that's awesome context because I like, and just even when you say lights on, I think it's important for the the listeners to know that that means like you're hiring people, right? To find the deals, to do the due diligence. Like, I mean, it's like to even find, to even get that first investment to deploy the capital, right? And you you need that money. And then that that, that carried interest, maybe you can uh, shed some light because there's a lot of thoughts around the carried interest, right? When and how do you get it? Because I think that's going to be one of your differentiators and some of the like big questions that people have. But that, so... And then inside of that, maybe that, that can kind of help with the fund, you know, so because you have fund one, maybe two or three. So you've got the management partner or the management uh, company versus the fund and how, where does, where do those um, revenue streams come from? Yeah. So, so most of those revenue streams actually come from the fund. Um, if you, and this oversimplifies it, but if you look at it as a sort of classic, who's the customer lens, the customer is actually the fund, right? Of the management and general partner's job is to deliver the outcomes that the fund wants, to find investments for it, complete those investments, you know, depending on who you are, somewhere between monitor those investments and actively help those investments, right? Different strategies at different firms. Uh, And so I think a good analogy for carried interest 
is it's very much like equity at an individual company, right? It's it, equity usually only has value if you create new value. And so it kind of fits with that equity horizon. And in general, the carried interest opportunity is the big opportunity, right? The reason I use the lights on term is that the fees from the management company for most <clears throat> smaller funds, um, they pretty much just fund you're not getting rich. offices and people <laughs> yeah. and you're not. Now look, the, the, the truth of it is 12 people can manage, you know, a few hundred million dollar fund. 12 people can probably also manage three few hundred million dollar funds. 12 people can probably also manage three individual billion dollar funds. So lots of, um, you know, for, for those of you who have a manufacturing business, it has some, or a software business, it has some analogies there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you got a minimum level of fixed infrastructure you've got to have. And, and once your revenue increases enough to cover all of that, your next new dollar of revenue starts to get exciting. Contribution margins. There you go. <laughs> Contribution margin. But in, in general, the, the, the reason people from an economic lens are in this business <clears throat> is for carried interest. So if they make investments and they just get their money back plus 8%, they wasted everybody's time, including their own. And the carried interest is capital gains, not ordinary income, right? So there's a there's a big incentive to well, because it's equity. Like you did for that analogy. Yeah. So fu- funny thing, it's largely um, that is true. Um, although interestingly, in the last tax bill, private equity got a negative consequence of the last tax bill. Now I think it's a positive context, but largely. And it's here's how this works. <clears throat> if you get a return in less than three years, you don't get capital gains on it. You actually have to pay ordinary income unless it takes you longer than three years. And it, and it was, I think, an appropriate tweak to the private equity industry to say, hey, look, if you're flipping companies in two years, like you shouldn't be tax advantaged for that. Um, and it was a small nudge, but a little nudge to the industry to say, hey, maybe you should draw your time horizon out a little more, um, which I'm very much a supporter of. So I didn't see that one come down and go, oh, I'm mad. I saw it come down and say, hey, this is healthy for private equity industry. Well, I mean, and because like, what, yeah, we don't have to get into it too much right now, but like, what could you possibly do to a business in 24 months from people and systems and processes to, tr- to create economic value versus just find a different strategic buyer that needed it more than you did? <laughs> That's right. It's hard to create a lot of value in 24 months. It's, it often feels like you're just getting started. Well, and then that, that we'll get we'll get into the time horizon. But I think what you you had an interesting foundational comment about the that the fund is the customer. So explain kind of like when you setting up a, when you're setting up a fund, you know, is there investment thesis, the timeline? So like as you have this one fund, how you go about like what is the, the kind of start to end of a fund like typical fund life cycle look like? And then how are you deploying that money? And and how does that what what is that customer's demands? Yeah, and and so I'm gonna meaningfully generalize, but but hopefully it'll it'll be helpful. Um, so you'll build an investment thesis that says, look, we're gonna buy or invest in these kinds of companies in these shapes and sizes and situations. So if you have a you know lower middle market private equity fund like Satori, where we're investing in companies that are five to twenty five million of EBITDA, we're not going to invest in companies that have a million a year of revenue. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do. It's it's so you have to have some clear definition of you know what business are you in. It just in generally an investor is not the same thing as specifically an investor in a size or stage. And there's lots of different ways to cut it. You can I'm going to be a restaurant and retail specialist. 
mm-hmm. or I'm going to be a specialist at this size company um, or this country or, or what have you. So you build that investment thesis. And then more often than not, people will go to the institutional markets and say, look, here's my investment thesis and here's my track record. And in, in a typical paradox that feels a little like venture capital, if you don't have a track record, you can't get any money to get a track record. <laughs> it's the nature of things. And I think it's the world saying you just have to want it really bad to get one started. Because um, you just keep, I, you know, I look, I had a friend that did a fund, 800 meetings. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making that up. 800 meetings to raise his fund, but he got it done. That's a guy who said, I, this is more important to me than everything else. And so I'm just going to keep at it. And so you'll go and raise this capital and, and the capital you have, you don't actually have it. You have a commitment for the capital. And the way that money will get deployed is more often than not in private equity stage, you'll have about 10 portfolio companies, which means you'll want to make two investments a year. And when you make that investment, you'll send a note to your investors and say, hey, we've made this you know, investment in company XYZ. We're calling your capital. Please wire us your pro rata amount of the money right now. And so then you deploy that money. Um, and so they have a, what's yeah. called an investment period that's about five years yeah. that you need to get the money out in five years. Spent um, five years. Spent, reinvested. Yep. Well, because I was going to say, like, when, like, on that note, I think, because, like, when you're going to those investors to raise the money, you're telling them not only the investment thesis, but also when they should expect to give the money and then also get it back, right? With a specific return. Like, that's, that's right. all part of it. Because, and then, like, and as we get, end up getting to the end of this, where, where you can kind of explain Satori or any other private equity firms, like, what is said in there and all those decisions that are made are what the seller needs to find out, right? Because I've seen people with, they have no investment thesis or because they can't find a company to buy. They were a restaurant specialists and now they're manufacturing specialists and then professional service specialists, right? Like they're, the, the, the investment thesis expands or, you know, I, I'm watching people where they can't find a company to buy at a reasonable price. And all of a sudden they're collecting that, um, that management fee for years and they're and the investors are going to you going to spend this money or what? So That's that, right. There's a lot so of this, look, this, I don't want to go all the way down the time pressure thing here, but it's, it's an important note. There is time pressure in the industry. If you don't invest the capital then you don't get to manage it anymore. And so the clock's ticking every day. Um, you know, in our case, we'll look at a thousand investments a year and do two or three. Our objective is actually to be able to do three a year. And, as an industry, the investors generally expect their money back five years after they invested it. So when I call capital from an investor, now it, look, in our case, it's very different. Our investors are signed up for indefinite time horizon. Uh, but in general, if you're a private equity investor, when you send a check, you expect to get that check back plus a return in roughly five years. So then let's go, we can go back to what you were saying is like, okay, like now you're on the hunt for up to 10 companies, right? So maybe like it, now you've got this investment thesis and whatever it might be like, I mean, the amount of times I've heard, and I think there's, well, even before I go down that road is the exponential growth of, of the mono, the quantity of private equity firms that have gone up, even like the micro ones, right? Like you're on the, you're in the billion uh, dollar mark, but I'm watching, I've seen people that are $40 million private equity firms where they're able to start these firms and in a fairly relative, you know, easy uh, pace. Then they go out and they want to buy these companies. So depending on how what their track record is, how many funds they've had, you know, the investment fees, all that stuff is so important. So then, as you, you 
how are they going to find these companies? How many companies go inside that fund? But then also, you, maybe can you explain the difference between like a platform and then the bolt-ons? Because that also, all these things, the reason I'm asking these questions, Sonny, is these are questions that the seller should ask to understand what company am I and what fund am I the bolt-on? Am I the platform? You know, like, you know, where are you in your time horizon? These are all important questions to understand what's going to happen after the, the deal closes. Yeah, so I'll give you some, some very specific questions to ask. Um, one, ask for a copy of the presentation that they use to raise capital for the fund. Because you're going to learn a whole lot about what they care about, where their priorities are, what their time horizons are, what their terms are with their investors, all those kinds of things. You'll get to see how they present themselves to their customers. That's really... Yeah. So just ask for that and see what happens next. Um, <laughs> you might get some funny looks and that... Well, that's, it's all information. Everything is information. If somebody doesn't want to give it to you, that's information. <laughs> um, so that'll get you a little dialed in on how they're looking at the world. I think to your point of, oh, a couple other questions you should ask. And, and these are pretty precise questions. When did your commitment period start and when did it end? Or your investment period? So what that tells you is, are they in the beginning of their five-year time frame to deploy this capital or do they have six months left and they have to do a deal right it's interesting to even see the way our our industry talks about these they're they rarely talk about you know investments and companies and they talk about doing deals slinging deals and you're just wow these are like real companies with you know, lives people. at stake and people <laughs> and they're like yeah we did a deal and so understand where you are in the investment period and then and this should be in the presentation but make sure you understand they're, they're for virtually all funds, unless someone's gone out of their way to structure it in a different way, there is a date in the future that you can put on your calendar that is the end of the fund. And that's usually 10 years from the beginning of the fund, um, right? Five years to get the capital out and five years to get the very last dollar back. And you've got an average hold period of five years for each of these investments. But it's an actual date. And sometimes there's extensions and things like that that can push it out a couple of years. But, but there's a date you can put on your calendar and they will have sold your company by then. It's mechanics. It's right. not opinion. It's mechanics. It's just how it works. Um, and it's in their legal docs with their investors. And so it's, look, it's hard to have a long time horizon when you know you have to sell the company there's a date. five years after you bought it and so on and so forth. Um, and that time horizon gets shorter every day. I think that's another thing to be aware of. You go, well, you know, five years is a long time to, you know, for time horizon as a CEO, maybe I'm only thinking five years out. Yeah, but when you're two and a half years into it, now their time horizon isn't still five years, it's two and a half years out. Not it's a getting rolling shorter. five years, right? No, it's shorter every day. <laughs> yeah. So then um, explain then. So it, the time horizon in that date is important, but then also, bolt-on versus versus platform i think there i want you to explain that for the listeners but also then in context because like in our in our uh, educational content we we differentiate we had to for like all the different exit options there could be but there was five that we have out there um and, and insiders you know search fund esop private equity and strategic there are times where a private equity firm can be a strategic right like i get that but it you know we for for our purposes we had to split them off into two but I think that also depends on the investment thesis and where they are of, you know, a bolt onto the platform. Maybe kind of give us some insights on that. So one of the playbooks that is a common playbook in private equity 
um, is to buy a platform company. And platforms tend to be larger companies that are a little more mature. And so the playbook is you you buy the platform company and then you go find a lot of smaller companies to bolt them on to the platform company, which is why it's called bolt on. And, and often you get some meaningful economic arbitrage between what you pay for a company with 10 million in revenue versus what you pay for a company with a hundred million in revenue. So in just sort of gross, simple terms, you would buy a company with a hundred million in revenue as your platform company and then do add-ons or bolt-ons of a bunch of $10 million revenue companies. And so that's one way private equity firms build larger businesses that are more valuable. By and large, as companies get larger, they are more valuable. The market sort of generally seems to play that out. Not always, but but generally true. Well, and I think, give a, if I could, I'll shed just even some basic hypothetical numbers. But if you had a million or a hundred million dollar company, you're doing ten million in EBITDA, and you have got a million, ten million dollar revenue company that you're built that's doing a million in EBITDA, you might be paying what five, you know, four or five x on that million. And then that's once right. it gets once it gets to twenty million in EBITDA, you're getting automatically just by a size a seven x or something. Like yeah, that. it's just going to be bigger. And you know, look, one of the things to be aware of is a as a bolt on. Usually, bolt-ons assume meaningful cost savings. Um, Describe that for me, would you? (laughs) Yeah, it's a generic term. Um, But here's what that means. Like, look, they're likely going to buy your company with 10 million of revenue and a million of EBITDA. And by the time they're done with it, it has 10 million of revenue and two and a half million of EBITDA. A lot of the overhead you need to run a standalone company, you don't need anymore because the platform company has it. Maybe you've got manufacturing capacity that, they don't need because they're going to move it somewhere else, your finance team, et cetera. So the, there's some important questions. Once you figure out, by the way, here's how to figure out if you're, you're a bolt-on or a platform. Who do I report to? Just ask that question. Like, show me the org chart. Um, and if the answer is, well, you don't really report to anybody. You work for the board of directors and you're the CEO um, and I'll be one of the board members and so on and so forth. Then you, you know you're a platform. Um, and if you're going to be the, you know, provisional divisional co-head of something or other, then you, you're probably a bolt-on. Um, you're getting rolled up into um, a system versus being the platform. Well, I think what's important too, Sonny, especially, um, you know, you talk about it in your book and then we talk about it in our education. I talk about it on the podcast all over the place is if you're selling your business and you have the option of two private equity firms talking to you and you could be the bolt-on on one and the platform in the other one if what's important to you which is our first principle is to have your to keep your team because you've got a very bold vision for the industry you want to you know take the reins strategically just maybe take some chips off the table you know you're going to be more of a platform right because you're going to be directing the strategies versus slash 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 you know divisional head of whatever Right. I mean, because, but if you want to more retire, you know, it just, it's important depending on what that individual wants to understand like where they fit. Because, I mean, you could be reporting to the the platform company. You don't like their systems, don't like their, you know, how they're going to to market. I don't know. I mean, who knows, but it's, and, and, you know, reporting the platform company may be great. Maybe you're tired of the administration and the overhead and you miss, being able to just spend time with customers or you miss being able to go fiddle with a product or what have you. And and I want to be very clear on this. There's not a good or bad in this. This is a, oh, well, the only good or bad is if you don't know what you want. 
Because if you don't know what you want, you're not going to get it. <laughs> well, you just nailed it, which is, it's so funny because like, we start all of our five principles with your personal drivers. And the people are like, well, this is kind of fluffy. Why are we starting with this? I'm like, because if you can't articulate it, there's zero chance you're going to get it. So, I mean, it, right. there is no, and that, it, it, and that goes in to back up. That, that's in general for this entire private equity industry. There's no good or bad. It's just, you have to take what you want and identify it and then understand the mechanisms to, to marry them up. Otherwise, it's going to be, hopefully it all works out perfectly. Yeah. And it probably won't. If, <laughs> if you're just, you know, look, hope is not a very good plan. So then maybe we can get, uh, now that we kind of, that's some awesome groundwork. Talk about deal structure. So maybe, I mean, obviously bolt-ons versus uh, um, platforms might have a different price that that are paid, but like deal structures, where's the money coming from, debt, equity, give give us some uh, general overviews of that. Yeah. So, and and again, I'm going to genericize a little bit and maybe draw a contrast between the industry and, and how we do it. Um, so, so in general, private equity is buying a majority of the company. Uh, and more often than not, they'll use a combination of debt and equity to make that investment. And so let's say they're going to buy 75 or 80% of the company. One of the important distinctions to get is to, to think about their sort of old you and new you in these deal structures. Like you almost have to have a a green hat and a yellow hat. And green hat is old you. And old you actually sells 100% of the company to a partnership that's formed by new you and the private equity firm. And that partnership or corporation or whatever it happens to be, <clears throat> let's say they need $50 million to buy the company. So they're going to use $25 million of equity drawn down from the investors in a capital call the way we described earlier and $25 mm-hmm. million of debt. Now, it's often you know, expressed as a multiple of EBITDA and, and a lot. Of, so here's where it gets interesting is, is capital structure and deal structure and how that relates to price. So if investor A or acquirer A is willing to pay more for your company than investor or acquirer B, the question I want you to ask yourself is why? Just why? And there are lots of different outcomes there. And, and so here's an example of the why. One example might be investor A is willing to use more debt. If I can make the investment with $15 million instead of $25 million in, cap- in I, capital, right? For the front, yeah, in, equity, in, in right. equity capital, then I'll get a higher return for my investors. But I'm also taking more risk. Well, remember, you're rolling over part of your equity, so you're taking that higher leverage risk also. So can you explain that? Because it's it's interesting when we describe that in our boot camp and course, the 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 blend of debt to equity and why why what you just said is a thing. So for so for a business owner that under like understands how to run their huge company but doesn't understand what you just you know the, the blend of debt and equity, why would you get a higher return with more debt? So just quickly give a your your definition of it. Yeah, so I'll give it an easy house example. Right, house is worth $100. I only put a dollar down and I sell the house for $200. Then I made a 100x return on my $1. Mm-hmm. I started with a dollar and I ended up with $101. If I put $50 down on that house and I sell it for $200, then I made, you know, I tripled my money. 
So would you rather have a hundred times your money or three times your money? Great analogy. And the more debt you can put on it, the more times your money you get. So the higher IRR you get. The dollars of profit don't change, but the percentages change. And your customers, in this case for, for the private equity firms, one of the measures of success are the percentages. And so it's e- plus it's easy. Like you don't have to figure out how to make sales better. You just go into Excel and take that one little box. It shows how much debt. And you just make that number bigger. And if you make that number bigger, everything works out great, right? That's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> oh, and don't worry. All revenues will be at a perfect 10% compounded annual growth. No global pandemics, no shutdowns. That's right. Everything will be just uh, fine. <laughs> but, but here's the problem. As a seller, you're staring at you know company A and company B, and one is offering you another $5 million. Because the way it really plays out is they just one can just pay more. And get the same and expect the same return. Well, why don't you pick them? Well, there's also more risk, right? The stories of the stories that end in tears of my company's gone now because it got blown apart are usually not the stories of, yeah, my private equity firm didn't use any debt in the transaction. They're usually the stories of my private equity firm used five times EBITDA or eight times EBITDA and something went wrong and now it's gone. And so it's, look, debt is like fire. It's neither good nor bad. Life would be a lot harder with no fire. And you can burn yourself to a crisp. <laughs> yeah, you're it's, it's great analogy. why I like the analogy, right? It's, um, I don't <laughs> like raw meat. I just don't. It's not my thing. So it's, it's a very useful tool. I've got an article out. I'm happy to share it with your, your yeah, listeners if you'd like. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, and, and the article um, effectively talks about, you know, equity, um, debt or equity. I've noticed there's a couple of camps. There's a crowd that is like, I'll never sell equity. And there's a crowd that says, well, I'll never take debt. And my point is like, you're both wrong. Like you're having, um, a, hey, we have a debt-free company. Hey, man, this is not your personal credit card life trying to evaluate whether or not you bought a TV on credit. Debt's a tool. Don't buy forklifts with equity. You told me you raised capital um, and you sold equity and then you bought forklifts and, and bagging machines for man, your manufacturing plant. I tell you, that's probably a suboptimal decision. <laughs> so again, it's, that's not good or bad. And like in our case, sometimes we use it, sometimes we don't. Um, I would say about half of our investments, we don't use it at all. And the thesis is usually very specific to that company, like it's a very cyclical industry. And so we can anticipate, hey, there's going to be a point at which things go straight down, not straight up. Um, sometimes the company's just not ready. Um, oftentimes our plan is, look, we're not going to use much, if any, now. Let's go through 18 months of going to the gym together and, and getting things sorted out and ready and so forth. And then we'll actually better understand together how much debt we might use on the company. But a lot of our thesis is not, how do we get leverage and make a return based on taking more risk? Our thesis is, how do we make the companies better or or not make them help our leadership teams make them better and and get a return that way? Well, and if I can give some uh, context uh, of an analogy that go back to your house and what, why this matters, especially with an unforeseen thing like a shut, you know, global wide shutdown with a pandemic is that, you know, if your debt you know, if it's going to be a million dollars a month in debt service, you don't have the ability 
to have project-based revenue and profits, right? Like you said, like the seasonality, like, are you going to be able to service that debt? And it's just like, when you say going back to the gym, I'm assuming you're talking about de-risking the cash. So we, you know, in our, in our trailing 12 months that we do for our clients with all your projections, I mean, if they're like this, like, uh, you know, the heart rate monitors, it's like, okay, well, we need to smooth that out so we can understand how much you, cause you could, you can refinance. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. You say, Hey, yeah. after 18 months, we, you know, a bank will give us a loan to pull some money back out of this, but we're comfortable with us being able to service that, that, that monthly payment. That's right. So if you've, um, you know, have a better understanding of your cash flows and maybe the business is a little more profitable, um, and you've got better headlights. So, so one of the things we notice in, in most of the companies we invest in are under hundred million of revenue. Most are over 25. So it's sort of in that range. Sometimes they're over hundred. They don't have really good headlights, um, to see what's happening with cash in particular. Sometimes they'll have okay headlights on the PL, rarely on the balance sheet and almost never on cash flow. It is possible to grow your way out of business. <laughs> it happens. It, um, my partner is going to be listening to this and he's going to be so, like I said, when we were going back more than emails, you guys are cut from the same cloth about the debt too. And in he, cause he, he ties all, all three uh, income or all three financial statements together. And then trailing 12 months and then out your projections all tied together. And it's like in literally growth is expensive. I mean, I've had people on the podcast Sunday where they had to sell the business because they grew 40% year over year. And he's like, if I would have grown at wow. 25%, I could keep my own company. Yeah. Yeah. So, so deeply understanding um, how your business generates or consumes cash, understanding how variable your cost structures are can help you understand is debt an appropriate tool for what I'm trying to solve for. The because like a normal bank, I believe a commercial bank would put what like two times EBITDA debt on it or something like that. Two, I mean, headed toward three these days and has been for some time, but not seven uh, or eight like you just said, right? <laughs> so for these size companies, no. But you know, look, if you do three times from the bank, or maybe it stretches to three and a half times, and then you get a mezzanine lender, which um, is another lender with a higher interest rate stack that on top of the bank and you know you might be up in the five times range and again it's very sensitive to size of of ebitda in the businesses so Mm -hmm. a business with 20 million of ebitda has a different set of choices Um, they can get more debt at a lower price Mm -hmm. than a company with 5 million of ebitda Mm -hmm. Um, so what happens the companies with 20 million of ebitda one of the reasons they cost more they sell for more is because you can put more debt on it it's, this is just a math. Like, look, investor A is going to pay more than investor B. They either believe something about the business that no one else believes, are willing to use more debt, or are willing to take a lower return, or are willing to take an action that no one else will take. So maybe investor A is going to move all of your production to Uruguay and shut down the plant. Okay, well, they can probably pay more because they go, hey, we're going to drop the cost in half. And, and maybe that's not what you thought the plan was. So just be mindful if somebody, you know, somebody is going to pay more. There's a reason. We, what does that mean in terms of their willingness to take risk, willingness to use debt? What changes do they expect in the business? And again, it's not bad. Sometimes uh, we had an investment we made where 149 people passed on the investment. And then we made the investment. Hmm. And it's been one of our best investments. We believe something about the future that no one else was willing to believe. Oh, interesting. Right. We saw something there that for whatever reason, others didn't see 
or weren't willing to see or didn't agree with or what have you. So we made the investment and it turned out to be an extraordinary investment. Does your time horizon or how you reinvest in the business have to do with that? You know, in, in this particular case, um, I think this one was less about time horizon. Um, but again, as a reminder, we're, we're not buyers and sellers of businesses. We're just owners of businesses. So our time horizon is the same as our portfolio company CEOs. We're owners. And if, if it makes sense for somebody else to own the business, then okay, we should do that. And if it doesn't, then let's just be owners. Like we don't buy things trying to figure out how to sell. I think that's a really important distinction. Um, a, lo- a lot of the industry buys things trying to figure out how to sell them. And in our case, we just buy them trying to be owners. Because here's the, here's the thesis. If you have a growing company with happy customers and happy employees and lots of cash flow, everything's going to be okay. Like, Doesn't it sound like a beautiful situation? <laughs> it's just so simple. You go, everybody's happy. Like all my stakeholders are happy and I got plenty of cash flow. Like the rest of it works out. You know, I couldn't have told you that we were going to take one of our companies public when we made the investment. Um, in fact, my starting place would have been, no, let's not do that to anybody. It's, it's, that's hard and it's a drag to be the CEO. And long story short, it was the right choice for this business. But let's not buy it trying to figure out how we're going to sell it. So when you go to buy a house you're going to live in and raise your kids in, are you thinking about who you're going to flip it to? No. You're thinking about, hey, maybe we could make an improvement over here. And what if we put a pool in? And how's this neighborhood? And what kind of memories will we have? And all these things that are very different than, yeah, I'm going to buy a condo in phase one and flip it to somebody in phase three and pick up a little money. Paint everything hide everything. That's right. (laughs) So because we've probably only got like five, 10 minutes here, um, I want you to describe your experience raising your money, your thesis behind Satori, now that we've got this context, because I give you so much respect. Like the amount of no's that you must have had. I mean, hey, hold on a second, give me your money. Thank you. And there's an indefinite hold period. Like, so <laughs> go back and just you know, explain like the, the structure as it relates, the contrast as it relates to what we were talking about. Yeah, so, so imagine if you will, um, it's 2008. The world is melting down. Um, I think it was Jay-Z refused to get paid in US dollars anymore. He... <laughs> Only would do contracts in euros, if you remember that. You know, Goldman Sachs couldn't clear a trade in the UK. People were, never mind money, like people were buying ammo and food. Maybe people were talking about going to New Zealand. It was pretty intense there for a while, um, especially for anybody who was anywhere near the financial system. And, you know, cheery eyed Randy and Sonny come out of being CEOs of, of companies and say, you know, we don't like the world we live in. We think that private equity should have a long-term time horizon. And by long-term, we mean forever. Um, and all this kumbaya stuff about stakeholders and culture and happy customers, we think that stuff's really important. And so we go running around bright-eyed talking to all of these pension funds and endowments about things that were frankly obvious to us. I mean, you know, look, we had both built pretty successful businesses and um, had good outcomes. And and these things were obvious to us based on real experience. And we went out and like, I don't think anybody actually laughed in the meeting, but you could see people trying not to laugh when we're talking about this stuff. Does person have gas or what? Why are they squinting? Yeah. Like, hold- <laughs> and so, yeah, look, it, 
Randy was an early pioneer in mobile. I was pretty early in internet stuff and then cloud stuff. You know, my old company built the first cloud computing, launched it in 2005 um, to, to give you context. So we were used to getting kicked around a little bit when people were like, yeah, that'll never happen. And that's cute. But man, this one was was pretty intense because we just met with, you know, pension fund after pension fund or or what have you. And they just thought we were nuts. Like it wasn't even like, huh, you know, I never thought about it that way. They just thought we were clueless about how the world worked. Being entrepreneurs, we were stubborn. Um, and having been successful before we had the you know economic staying power to be stubborn and to just keep at it. Our belief was um, very much the cliched, you know, there's nothing like an idea whose time has come. We just were maybe a little early. You know, the context, the world was melting down. So it's, it was probably not the best time in the world to, to raise a fund. And we would run around explaining to everybody, hey, you know, the, the funds that get raised in a recession always outperform. People didn't care. Like they were not, people were not ready to lock their money up for 10, 20, 30 years. <laughs> My portfolio just took a hit. Here, here, by the way, here, here you go, Sonny and Randy. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, as you might imagine, the investors that did on the margin did really well as a result of that. I mean, ultimately, we found home. And home for us as an investor was another CEO. This funny thing happened. We were chatting with some CEO friends about what we were doing and our experience and how it was going and why it was hard. And over and over again, they'd start to lean forward and go, wait, wait a minute. I understand exactly why you're doing it that way. Can I invest? And so instead of having to defend the things that made us different, we found a community that appreciated why we were different and, and loved us for it. And so we just stopped talking to the crowd that didn't like it and kept talking to other CEOs. So our typical investor looks like somebody who had a successful business and um, sold it or had a successful business and still owns it because when they hear the things that we care about, they care about those things too. And their belief is that they'll get a better outcome over the long term. Um, so, you know, it is, as I get further and further away from that experience of call it 2008 to 2012, um, we always like to paint the early days with a rosier brush than it really was. That's a good human skill to remember and sometimes long for, for the early days. And they're way harder. We just rewire our world. It was, it was hard, uh, but it had to be done. And here's why it had to be done. If we can do it, if we can pull it off, if we can build an investment firm that says culture matters and customers matter and the long-term matters and all of these other things, and we can deliver great returns, that makes it a little bit easier for the next one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somebody on this podcast, somebody listening someday will look up and go, you know, I'm going to start an investment firm and I care about that stuff too. And then they'll get a few more investors. And now those investors start to care about that and start to notice it and start to wonder why don't we care about culture or how much debt do we have on this? And if just a little bit, we can cut a path through the jungle to make it easier for the next firm to do it, then we've been successful. Like what I'm really trying to do is to put myself out of business. One day I'll go into the office and the things that make us different won't be different anymore. And that will be the day that we won, not the day that we lost. That's so cool, Sonny. And like, it is uh, what I what I am hopeful for is there's people that I look up to like the realities of the world who are talking about essentially. I mean, he's not. I don't think he said conscious capitalism, but he's like we need the long term of this. Like 
economically yeah. this has to work for everybody because we're watching what like what's happening and it's and it's not okay and like and then uh, i think uh steve schwartzman um from blackstone had a whole article pretty much saying con- conscious capitalism right i mean like so there's there's people that are out there talking about this but it's very difficult when you're in that 90 day hamster wheel and so it takes people like yourself like you said cutting a cutting a path through the jungle that literally like hey it's going to be easier cuz you don't have to hit in the face with all those branches like we did how it, I, i'm i'm curious in whatever um level of detail you want to give of with the carried interest so you got the management fee with the carried interest of not having a specific time date in your fund or funds like how is there a hurdle rates for cash flow or is it just you know, like a specific in like long term um, internal rate of return that they're trying to get. How does how does that structure work? Yeah, so so our investors expect the same or better IRR internal rate of return as any other investor. Just our belief is chasing time is not the way to do it. Chasing value is the way to do it. Right mm-hmm. there, are, there are a couple of equations in there. You know, a couple of inputs to IRR, and there are different ways to to make that number better. And one of them is to shorten your time horizon. And another one is just create more value. Period. Like, it seems obvious. You go, yeah, Sonny, thanks. So you're not helping me, but that's no, it's, that's it, the it reality is. of it. it when, you, when you take the shackles off of the time, like, I mean, like I've had people on the podcast and understand every dollar comes with a personality. It's not just an IRR. You have someone that came yeah. with it that's sitting at a board seat or sitting as the chairman or chairperson or the, the some sort of like chatter, right? That just allows you to like, I mean, Brent B. Shore, when he was on my podcast, he said, yeah, man, like if I have to invest in a new location and a new product that might take a 10 year, you know, to actually unfold, I'm okay doing it. And it's just that ability is so different than stock buybacks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very different mindset. And and I got two, two things that are, I think are, are useful. One is a story I'll tell in a moment. Um, and another one is this. I think growing understanding that there are two kinds of capitalism. The kind of capitalism that we're talking about where customers and employees and suppliers in the community are front and center and we're thinking about business is a different thing than the kind of capitalism where I'm thinking about navigating antitrust and how much should I spend on which kinds of lobbyists and can I do a stock buyback. But those are very, very different things. One's about regulatory and legal and stock market and what's permissible and legal versus what's good. And another one is about customers and value creation and employees and and so forth. And so increasingly two very different kinds of of capitalism. And I think both kinds get a bad rap for one kind's behavior. So to your point about stock buybacks, it's a little ridiculous. It's it's interesting, Sonny, as as I've become just an absolute I, I junkie on this stuff from the, you know, macroeconomics, you and I are going back and forth in the emails and stuff. And like, I think that like when you take capitalism in itself and then you just like, you have these principles to, to still raise situ, uh, terminologies. Like if you just exacerbate or like put, you know, like run those, extrapolate those situations with the, the fundamentals together like the situations will be different right like it's almost like artificial intelligence like you put something in an algorithm and then you put a bunch of data through it whatever the 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 algorithm is we'll just extrapolate the data right well like with humans it's like okay what's important first and then you run the scenario and the outcomes are different and i think like 
you know, the amount, amount of financial engineering and shuffling of shit around. It's like, what, what, what did you actually do? Did you, <laughs> did you actually give a product to someone for $10? You made $3 in profit that went to employees and to investors? Or did you just take who, what someone made and then take that $3 and then back behind the scenes, just shuffle things around and just make, make a spread on it? And it's like, it's just like, what's, what actually provided value to our world? And I just, it's just interesting way of look, two different lenses to look at. One of the questions we ask ourselves when we think about a particular investment is, what if we grew the company tenfold? Is the world any better off? And why? And it's a useful question to ask. And by the way, that's not always about product that or service. That can be about the way the company runs. So if a company is the best place to work in its city or state, and now it's 10 times bigger, well, that's 10 times more people that get to work at a best place to work and be fulfilled and passionate about their work and go home happy and feel like they're creating value in the world and so on and so forth. Um, and that's I was gonna say, a little different that, than arbitrage. Way different. And like, when, so Jack Stack's recent podcast I did with him, like, I just, like, I love what he's doing to this world. And I'm like, he's making freaking engines. He could literally be doing ice cream and it wouldn't matter because the whole podcast was about what he's done to his people of 1600 employees. And then the world's better off. And it's, He's making engines. It's not that yeah. sexy, right? But like he could be doing something else and the whole, the whole philosophy behind it is the same. So let me tell you this story before we run out of time. I was sitting with a friend. Um, this was many years ago, probably 15 years ago, as private equity investor. And we were having lunch and he was super excited. Uh, and he was excited because he was going to sell one of his portfolio companies. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And he was talking about how great the management team was and how much the company was growing and how much cash flow and all these things. He was like, this is a wonderful company. It's like, we're going to sell it and, you know, get this return. And, and as a reminder, that's, you know, um, will be an important event for him too, because that's the long-term revenue stream. And I, for whatever reason, I just asked him and go, that's cool. So when you sell it, what are you can do with the money? And thought about it for a minute. I said, well, I'm going to go try to find a company with a great management team and a great product that's growing. And, and right. You, you, I see the look on your face. You're like, Hey, I know how this story ends. I, I kind of scratched my head. I looked over at him and I go, so you're going to sell the thing you already have. That's exactly what it is. You're going to go try to find and buy. Uh, what am I missing here? I've just looked at him. like, am I missing something? Um, and the missing piece obviously was what his investors want their money back. And so we don't sell this great company that you have to go try to find another one just like it. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, and that <laughs> it is ridiculous, isn't it, when you think about it? It's just that's our industry. And look, I, I'm very cognizant of the reality of if I call you and I say, hey, you should invest money for an indefinite time period, and I get to tell you when you're getting it back, is can be a little scary. I've got a lot of empathy for people being unwilling to lock up their capital for an indefinite time. And I've seen the difference in behavior on the ground, the real world, actual difference in what decision you make when you just don't worry about time anymore. Mm -hmm. you, you still worry about IRR, by the way. Patient does not mean comfortable with lower expectations. Patient just means some things take a little longer than a quarter to play out or a year to play out. Let's have some horizon, like we're real 
strategic CEOs and, and board members and think about the future, not just about three weeks from now. It, it, and that's it, that, that, that could be, that could ripple across every single decision in a company. You know, there's two other comments um, from the ESOP community or conscious capitalism community where you say, okay, when you have an employee that's making 18 bucks an hour and they get a call from a customer and it's four fifty-five, what do they do? What's your employee do? Right. I mean, like that says everything about your company, your employees, your customers, everything. And it just, yeah, I think it's very interesting. So one last, one last note to kind of expand on your story from the private equity firm that you're saying about selling. I had almost the exact conversation with an owner last week, got an Abu offer for up, you know, in the twenties of millions of dollars. And, um, He's like, everybody said, you won, go, 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 go cash out. And I said, you've already won. That's what your company's worth. And I'm like, what are you going to do with the money? <laughs> he literally said that. He goes, well, I'm going to go find another company with awesome people. To, and I'm just like, you just described your own company. So like, I think it's interesting because a lot of founders, uh, there was a gentleman on my podcast recently. He said that 95% of companies that are sold are from founders who didn't buy it. I'm like, well, that's interesting because they're not investors. Like mm-hmm. they don't know the language that you and I are discussing right now. And it's like, if they understood true value, they could say, well, yeah, you, you're worth this, but it's just locked in your own business, right? You might need to have like some partial liquidation, which is understandable. Maybe then you look at a Satori, you look at a partial ESOP or some sort of other partnership or something to take some chips off the table. But so many times I've had on my show, Sonny, someone that exited for a lot of money and they're literally, they said, I wish I would have been the one acquiring instead of sure. the one selling. Because they they understood what you and I just discussed after they went through it instead of, and that's why I think what you're doing in the world is so important because they could accomplish a couple different of their objectives personally and financially by understanding how to you know you know uh, connect a lot of these dots. But it's it's very unique to find. You know, unfortunately, um, some of these lessons you have to learn the hard way, and so. The, the reason we structured Satori the way we structured it, we learned a lot of lessons the hard way. The reason I wrote the book Selling Without Selling Out is because I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And what we're trying to do here is to, to try to help maybe the, the next person not have to go through it the hard way. To your point, so many CEOs you interview say, I wish I would have known X before I sold my company. Like maybe between us, we can bring some of that X factor back to the before you sold the jungle path, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, ask crazy questions like what's the culture like at your acquirer and what are they motivated by and what are they most concerned about in this investment? And, you know, I've got a, a, a comment in the book that goes something like if the questions you're asking don't make people uncomfortable, you're not asking the right questions. I actually take it on the last interview you did with me. I uh, I say it in our boot camp. Well, there's um, two that I uh, say. One is that um, I say you have to make all your advisors extremely uncomfortable. If you didn't, you didn't do your job. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you you the 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 book is great. So as we're wrapping up here, what's the best place for the, the listeners to find you, Satori, your book? Um, we'll put all the links in the show notes too. Yeah, so the the book will be on both web- websites. Easy to get to Amazon, etc. For more information about selling without selling out, some of our workbooks and so forth, sunnyvanderbeck.com. That's S-U-N-N-Y. Got some workbooks there that'll help you through the process. Um, and for more information about Satori Capital and, and how we might be an investor at a company, and that's satoricapital.com. 
Love to have a conversation with anybody. It is awesome having you back on the show, man. Hey, I appreciate the invite. Lots of fun. If you paid attention that whole time, if you were taking notes, uh, I don't know what you were doing while you're listening to it, but I love this stuff because if you own your business and you start thinking about valuation, value growth, then this is something that you probably can't get enough of. I highly recommend you check out our Intentional Growth digital course. Go to arcona.io and then you can check out the course or you can join one of our upcoming virtual cohorts where six to 10 business owners go through the course together over four calls. The course is a thousand bucks. The virtual cohorts are fourteen fifty. If you want to do individual coaching calls with me, it's two thousand bucks for the course plus four calls over a month. Either way, start learning and continue your learning so that way you can continue to clarify where it is that you want to go and then how to focus on strategies or growing value and creating more choices. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.